0: what is happening you beautiful bastards welcome back to another week this week we talked to a guest his name is jim Ambuski, and jim knows
1: everything we'll say revolutionary war and civil war related so he's actually a historian of the american revolution scotland which we didn't really touch on at all and the british atlantic world and on top of that he leads the center for digital history at the washington library so He's a guy who knows a thing or two about American history. We find out that Jerry's history needs a little brush up. Mine's probably needs a brush up too. (laughs) Yeah. And I'd imagine that like most Americans, my history lessons ended in high school. Yeah. And there's
0: a lot of things that this high school doesn't
1: go into. It kind of hits the heavy points and moves on. Yeah. And we actually, that comes up in the episode. You'll find out that uh, it's just way too involved. You can't just teach a bunch of high school kids who don't want to be there all the intricate details. We barely even grasped the fact that there was a Revolutionary War.
0: What is happening, you beautiful bastards?
2: The real question I have is, uh, do I get to consider myself a beautiful bastard after this is over, or I mean- is Oh, i was a bastard. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
0: Well, so Jerry brought up, the, you You asked us the question yesterday of what topics we might want to go over. And Jerry brought up the myths of how the Revolutionary War started. And I sat there and said, what myths are there that were on the one, how the Revolutionary War started?
2: We, I, you know, there's, I, I would struggle to think of myths by why the war started, but we can think about Maybe not myths, but misconceptions about the revolution, if that's helpful.
1: Yeah it, yeah, it kind of depends on the topic. I always like to hear what, uh, what the falsehoods are because, you know, depending on what the uh, topic is, mm-hmm. some of the theories can get pretty wild.
2: Yeah, well, that's certainly true, especially with the, the founding moment. Well, I guess I'm, I'm curious what, what particular myths or misconceptions or, or falsehoods did you have in mind
1: that, that were percolating in your head? I actually didn't really have much because uh, you can see
0: why I asked the question. Yeah. So
1: (laughs) I I figured you'd probably know some of the misconceptions Mm because you're you're more well-versed than I am. Uh, I'm not a great American. I have like a general (laughs) overview of, I have a general overview, but I don't know like,
2: well, that's all right. That's why you have this podcast, to educate the masses.
0: Yeah. My belief was always that it was a bunch of white guys who didn't want to pay their taxes.
2: I mean, that's part of it, right? Uh especially a lot of the elites who didn't necessarily want to pay taxes. But the real question is, or the several questions become what particularly about those taxes bothered them so much? Um, mm. because they're used to paying local taxes, so why not pay an imperial tax? What's the problem there? All well, well, you know, a big part of the British Empire. It makes sense that you'd want to contribute to king and country. Um yeah. what's what's the what's the deal?
0: Well, it didn't benefit them at all, right?
2: Well, It depends on how you look at it, right? So maybe we can just sort of start there because what we're really talking about is is in a sense how the British empire is supposed to function. Mm -hmm. That's what a lot of the argument is about, is about what is the empire's purpose? How does it serve the best interest of people like George Washington um, or other individuals on this side of the Atlantic? How does it serve the British people back home? What role does taxation play in all of that? and you know, we, we have to remember before the American Revolution, before the war, there's a, there's a gigantic global war that precedes it, What it's called the Seven Years' War, but in this part of the world, that, uh, there's a section of it called the French and Indian War. But mm-hmm. that war reshapes the map of North America and the British Empire here, uh, kicks the French out of uh, North America. Uh, finally, the British beat the French, their hated enemies for time immemorial. But as a consequence of doing so, of fighting that long war and of uh, taking on the new responsibilities to defend what they would call the back country, uh, later Americans would call the frontier, uh, and to begin settlement of newly acquired colonies in Canada and Florida and the Caribbean is very expensive. And I I don't remember the precise number, but the British government incurs something like 187 million pounds of debt fighting the war Mm -hmm. which if you do the inflation calculation, which I can't do off the top of my head, but that's a lot of money. Uh, And the British people back home are already very highly taxed. And so one of the things that the British government begins to do is look for other sources of revenue uh, to pay back that debt, to pay back their creditors. And part of the logic is, well, we just won this great war that will theoretically benefit fit you Americans in terms of the new opportunities. And so, you know, maybe, maybe you should pay a little bit.
0: <laughs> maybe you should contribute your fair share. Do you know how much they were taxing? Well, it depends on a variety of
2: taxes um, because they- institute, I the one. Yeah, so there's a number of taxes. Uh, and, and actually, before we actually get to that part, what also is happening in this period too is that there's a change in the British ministry uh, and the attitudes about the British government towards empire. So in 1760, King George II dies, and that brings to the throne our buddy George III. Mm. What also starts to happen towards the end of the Seven Years' War, uh, again, what we call the uh, French and Indian War here in North America, is that the people who had been in power for a long time in the British government, the Whigs, with a capital W, and it's not, not precisely what we would call a liberal, in the modern sense, but Whigs were people who were suspicious of monarchical power, put Mm -hmm. it that way. 1760, King George III comes to the throne and the Tories start to come into the government as well. And so the more conservative leaning, more uh, uh, folks who are uh, more interested in centralized power, it's hugely significant because they had been out of power since really the glorious revolution Mm -hmm. of the 1680s Uh, because they were allied with seemingly the deposed King James II. But the Tories are back. They have a different mindset about empire. The Whigs had been more willing to engage with Europe. The Tories are more interested in making the empire work for Britain's benefit in ways that they hadn't before, and then allowing uh, the extractive commodities that are coming out of North America, tobacco, sugar, things like that, to uh, power the economy, Uh, to subsidize British debt levels and to kind of create what we would call a mercantile economy, sort of a self-contained loop um, so that Britain still needs Europe. They still sell things to the continent. They are still re-exporting American goods uh, to the continent. Some American goods can be exported directly to the continent, but they really see it as a kind of a closed cycle. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that's... um, as a consequence of that, of those sort of the, the war itself, the new ministry, the attitudes towards empire and the British government, you start to see taxes emerging. Um, the Sugar Act of 1764, the Stamp Act of 1765, uh, which is more popularly known. The Townshend duties of 1767, so taxes on paper, paint, lead, glass, and tea. And then of course, everyone's favorite, the Tea Act of 1773, uh, which uh, really ticks off some people. <laughs> so, <laughs> And, uh, the precise levels of taxation. Um, I can't think of off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, but for example, the stamp act, uh, just to recap that the stamp act is placing a, a tax essentially on paper products. And so if you need to have a legal document, if you're printing a newspaper, even playing cards, you have to buy a Royal stamp, um, as a form of a tax. Um, the Americans get real ticked off at that. Uh, And so the British government tries these successive taxes um, and it reveals this uh, differing American idea about empire, whereas the Americans, and we're, you know, we're talking about white Americans here. We can talk about enslaved peoples and Native Americans as well over the course of our, our chat, but folks like George Washington, Henry Lawrence in South Carolina, John Adams in Boston, they see this as an intrusion on their rights because they see their own legislative assemblies as the only legitimate power able to tax them internally. So they, Mm -hmm. you you hear these
1: distinctions between internal taxes and external taxes, Mm -hmm. right? So, so they were kind of already at that point, viewing themselves as separate from, from uh, Britain.
2: I wouldn't say separate. I think
1: what what
2: becomes clear in the 1760s is that suddenly both sides realized they had different views of how the empire was supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's a product of history. Um, the Americans, and it's, it's kind of a falsehood to say that they were left to govern themselves. Uh, there's this old idea of what's called salutary neglect that essentially from the mid 17th century onward, the Americans uh, were largely able to do as they pleased within a certain political and economic regulatory framework um, governed by parliament. And that's not technically true because parliament has been regulating the colonies in one shape or form since the beginning in a very real sense. And parliament uh, and the king really has veto power over uh, colonial legislation. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, there's innumerable examples coming from Virginia and other colonies where they they pass some law out of their assemblies. They have to send it to the king and his privy council for the evaluation. And in many instances, the king will veto it if he doesn't think it's the best interest of uh, the whole empire. But there is this perception by the 1760s that through British attempts to tax the colonies that, that the British have somehow violated the compact that had merged historically. Mm -hmm. And so when they start saying no taxation without representation, what they're talking about is we have no representatives in parliament, Mm -hmm. uh, you are imposing on us what we consider to be an internal tax. And so you're taxing the physical goods that we use on a daily basis. Uh, we think only our respective assemblies have the power to do that. You know, parliament, if you want to regulate trade, cool. That's fine, man, do that, but you can't impose these kinds of taxes on us that we ourselves are accustomed to actually uh, levying through our representatives.
1: So did, at this point in time uh, in America's history, before the revolution, did the English actually own the colonies that were here?
2: Uh, it's a great question. It's, it's actually a very complicated, complex question, and I'll give you a, kind of a distinction. Sure uh because the way that the english later british settle the colonies is different than say spain in Mm -hmm. central and south america so in central and south america the uh, lands that become mexico and peru are are they become kingdoms of spain itself and so just like castile and granada and all these other places they become incorporated into the spanish state works a little differently in The what become the the American colonies, the English and later British colonies in the 17th and 18th century. So there's a mix of corporate colonies. So for Mm -hmm. example, Virginia was founded by the Virginia Company of London. And so it starts its life uh, off as a corporate colony. Later transforms into a Royal colony when the King takes it over in 1624. Uh, Pennsylvania is a proprietary company. Uh, (laughs) William Penn uh, essentially gets Pennsylvania to satisfy a debt that the monarch owed his father. Uh, and so he uh, technically owns Pennsylvania and has power to make land grants and you know, oversee the administration of the, of the colony uh, within certain limits. Uh, they're all um, loyal to the English, later British sovereign, but there's a kind of mix of, of royal, corporate, uh, and proprietary colonies that emerge. And so you've got this hodgepodge mix uh, developing by the 18th century that uh, is very distinct from what you saw in Spain. Uh, mm-hmm. And so the question of ownership is sort of like, well, it depends where you are, really. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yeah, so I can see how that would lead to uh, a lot of uh, maybe, maybe like quasi-confusion and a lot of people disagreeing on what they really should pay.
2: Uh, it, in a sense, yes. And we also have to think about the fact that at this time, it's not like all of these colonies are united. They're often competing right. with each other, too, right? So, Virginia and Pennsylvania are always competing with each other, it seems like. Uh, the Carolinas are competing with the sugar colonies, even though they're working with them half the time uh, to supply goods and things like that. Uh, you know, it, but there's also a great deal of collaboration, too. Uh, you know, Rhode Island merchants are intricately involved in the slave trade. Uh, the British Sugar Islands desperately need foodstuffs and timber supplies, so they're getting those from in the Mid-Atlantic and the, the New England colonies, things like that. Uh, but there's no kind of um, overall cohesion, I guess might be the word, mm. that would characterize these colonies except for that they are all uh, a part of this greater British empire and that they all swear allegiance to the British monarch.
0: So was it actually the the, like, was the Tea Party the, the straw that broke the camel's back then? Uh, very good
2: question. I think it broke the camel's back for the British government, certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, the Tea Act of 1773 is basically a get out of jail free card for the East India Company. Uh, what it actually does is lowers the duty on tea imported into the colonies, which makes the Americans angry for a couple of reasons. One. It lowers the duty sufficiently that it makes smuggling no longer profitable and Americans like to smuggle and smuggling had been kind of tolerated uh, because it was a kind of an effective form of commerce, but it was also bailing out what Americans saw as a very corrupt company Uh, And the East India company is almost a quasi sovereign arm of the British government at this point uh, by the 1770s. And they are in massive debt and parliament sees this as a way to kind of Fix that problem, but a lot of Americans are like, "Well, you're lining the pockets of complete morons who are running this company." And and you know, no. So the Boston Tea Party happens in in uh, late 1773, and it didn't happen. It didn't have to happen in Boston. It was kind of an accident because there were you know multiple ships of tea going to Boston and New York and uh, Philadelphia and Charleston, but the Boston one got there first. And when the group of Bostonians dressed as Mohawk Indians board that ship and dump the tea into the harbor and and destroy several hundred. I can't remember how the exact amount. You know, several hundred, several thousand pounds worth of tea. That for the British government is kind of the defining moment for them. Uh, mm-hmm. That at least some segment of the American population is in willful defiance of parliamentary law, the king's authority. And they are in a state of rebellion and, and actually, you know, in 74, the, the king hears all of this and he's like, well, now blows must decide whether these colonists are to be subject of the crown or, or independent states. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're, at this moment, they're really talking about Boston, but, you know, they can see the potential for, for trouble elsewhere. Uh, and parliamentary acts, you know, they, they passed the coercive acts, they shut down the Boston port, they changed the government of Massachusetts they try to isolate what they see as the locus of rebellion and it it in turn inflames um a lot of other americans as well
0: and i mean i know with talking about what jerry was asking about how what colonies fall under ownership whatnot that also Mm -hmm. came into later when they were trying to get together and you know become one cohesion like right it made it very difficult for everyone to get on the same page I mean, how long were were all the talks going on before they signed the Declaration of Independence?
2: Yeah, so, and I I guess, speaking of myths, right? Or misconceptions, Mm -hmm. I think this is one of them. Uh, We, because the American Revolution is part of our founding narrative, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: and we have the sense that everyone was in it together, that independence was always the goal. (laughs) Right, exactly. Really, you can think of the first 15 months of the war as a war of reconciliation. Americans, a lot of them, with some exception, maybe John Adams and a few of the other Bostonians, they don't want to break away. I mean, they have had good lives in the empire. It's advantageous for them, despite, you know, taxation problems, things like that. You know, they, they see themselves as part of a great imperial family that has accomplished a great deal together. Um, you know, there, surely there's problems, uh, you know, there's the taxation issue. Men like Washington feel more and more like second class citizens in the empire. So that's part of the issue as well. But there's real, I would be hesitant to say that there was a great deal of desire for independence. Hmm. Uh, there was a desire to push the British to reform the relationship but not outright independency. And so you you see the first Continental Congress in 1774 and the second in 1775. The first one in 74 is is really towards that kind of goal of trying to figure out how do we have a coordinated response so that we can petition His Majesty uh, and ultimately Parliament as well to see our side of things, to back down, to come to some kind of accommodation so that we can go back to the status quo you get the war breaking out April 19th, 1775, the next year, that changes the calculus, of course. Now it's it's morphed from a political and economic protest with boycotts and petitioning into an actual uh, outright military conflict. But even then, there is still the desire, uh, at least in the some part of, of delegates to the Continental Congress and Americans more broadly for reconciliation.
0: Well, th- we've talked about it on this show before where like, if you actually put your mind to it and think about what they were doing at that time, just so you said, before the war broke out, you're sitting there thinking, All right, if we do this, it's more than just taxations and a and we have our own our own colony to govern. They're gonna be coming for blood. And then when the war breaks out, I imagine that's gonna convince more people and more people, like, all right, the war is already here, but can we still get out of this without having more bloodshed? So, I mean, it was an interesting time to be alive. It's an interesting time to not, I mean, your decisions had a lot of weight to them.
2: Yeah, they really did. And they really, the pro-independence movement had to really cajole their fellow delegates, you know, by the summer of 1776. actually vote for independence uh you know they start talking about it in june it's kind of in the air already i think it's june the 28th that richard uh, lee introduces the resolution that
1: correction jim pointed out to us after the show that this didn't actually happen on june 28th it was june 7th back to the show
2: these colonies are not ought right to be free and independent states But there are a lot of holdouts. Uh, A New Jersey delegation isn't really inclined at that point. That delegation actually gets replaced on the 28th of June with a pro-independence delegation. Um, Some of the South Carolinians are skeptical. The South Carolinians benefit from empire because they are more like the sugar colonies in the Caribbean than they are Bostonians. Uh, And they are reliant on capital injections from British banks and British merchants to fund their uh, slaving enterprises and their plantation enterprises. So there's a lot of, um, uh, arm twisting, a lot of debate, but you're right. The, the question is, if we do this, then what next? Um, <clears throat> and it's only a certain segment of the population, the white population that is interested in independence. I mean, we, we can talk about the loyalists over the course of our conversation as well, but you know, it's, it's not like this is a broad-based movement where it's, it's all of white Americans thinking, yep, this is great. Let's do this now. It's, it's a small segment. But w- having done that, having declared independence, then uh, to your point about the colonies governing themselves, what they begin to do immediately on the advice of the Continental Congress that state governments, uh, the revolutionary governments that had assumed power from the royal governments, begin to transform themselves into states. Mm-hmm. And you know, begin to write new constitutions to govern themselves as republics and abandon their old colonial charters. Some, In some instances, they just take pieces of the old colonial charters and reconstitute them as Republican, small-R Republican constitutions. But uh, it's happening very fast, and they're all sort of trying to figure out what to do now.
1: <laughs> now, when they were coming together and talking about what the new direction was going to be, did they ever talk about having something... Similar to uh, a monarchy themselves, or did they all decide from the beginning? You know, we don't want that kind of uh, power here.
2: Right. It's a really uh, excellent question. And during the period in which they're struggling for reconciliation, there are several proposals, most prominently by a Pennsylvanian named Joseph Galloway, who who authors a, a what he calls an American Plan of Union, which would essentially have created an American Parliament and then created a President General, who would would kind of uh, oversee the colonies and that the Americans would have some kind of larger pan continental representation, but they would still be part of the British empire. And so what they're doing in a lot of ways is anticipating the later British Commonwealth. That's what Mm -hmm. they really see. Mm -hmm. They see themselves, they see themselves united by the King. Um, They they, uh, recognize Parliament's right to regulate trade and taxation from that level, but they're really anticipating just seeing the king as the head of state uh, and the, they can have this, this pan-American parliament to coordinate you know, defense in case the pernicious French ever come back and try something funny. Uh, that, that plan of union fails by one vote in the First Continental Congress. Now, if it had been passed, who knows what would have come of it? Probably the king and parliament would have said, thanks, but no, um, this is the way things work. But that gives you some sense of the tension within the American leadership itself at that point, as they're trying to figure out a way out of this. But whether or not they would uh, think of having a king post-independence, there was some talk of that, but not really. I mean, and, and I think you see a sign of that early when as soon as they've got independence, they begin talking about what really was America's, what some people call America's first constitution, which would be the Articles of Confederation. Mm-hmm. Uh, but was really just a a peace treaty of sorts, an alliance among the several states to coordinate the war effort and uh, and maintain a kind of defensive alliance uh, amongst themselves. And the fact that that Congress persists until the constitution without any kind of real head, I mean, there is a president of Congress, he can't really do anything, but Congress is really just a kind of committee of states, I think is is, uh, significant. Uh, and it tells you a lot about their suspicion of centralized authority, you know, because well into you know, the 19th century, the locus of power remains with the states themselves, even after the constitution. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of real talk of an American monarch at that point. Now, fears of that come later during the early Republic when they start talking about a president, but.
0: Wasn't he more like a referee than anything else? Like he just kept the peace at the meetings to a degree? Yeah, it, in a lot of ways climb, it was,
2: Yeah, it was like a lot of ways. It was kind of ceremonial. I mean John Hancock was president of the Continental Congress at one point, so it was Henry Lawrence. You know, Washington communicates with the president of Congress as opposed to the, the well he does communicate with the committees, but he's he's always in contact with Hancock or uh, some of these other folks. It, it's a real problem after the war is over because there's you know essentially a, a committee of of representatives from states trying to make decisions. And it's not going well <laughs> because they, they're thinking about their experiences from the war in terms of taxation. They can't get anything done. They can't raise revenue. It's, it's, um, it was not a great time to be alive in Congress at that point.
0: <laughs> now, you had talked about the, the loyalists beforehand. And that's mm-hmm. actually one aspect I never really thought of. And I would think when you're going into this or when they were going into this, you, might, you probably would already know who the loyalists were. And coming out of it, you could at least know where they were, but that might not have been true.
2: <laughs> yeah, that is a really good point. And you would think so, right? Like, oh, you can sort of see which way people are going to go. Yeah. And uh, in reality, it's not the case. I mean, some people were pretty hardcore king and country from the beginning. But a lot of people would switch sides, uh, depending on the the context or the situation in which they found themselves. You know, Moving you're going to have the wind. <laughs> right. If, uh, if the, Big old British armies coming your way, and you've got some property. Well, like you know, I was always pro king. We're good. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll put on that red coat. Um, but yeah, another sort of misconception about what we're talking about is that the American Revolution is a really, it's a civil war. Um, mm-hmm. It's really the first American civil war. You know, it's a civil war on kind of an imperial level. It's a civil war between two British peoples on both sides of the Atlantic, and it's an internal civil war amongst Americans. And loyalists remain loyal for a variety of reasons. Some really believe in the sanctity of, of the monarch and, uh, and have religious implications for that as well. I mean, the king is the head of the Anglican church. If you're an Anglican clergyman, chances are you're going to be loyalist. Some are loyal because they see um, what they would call the rebellion as an unnatural rebellion, so that there's mm. a natural order to society. There's the king. There's the, you know, the elites, there's the middling sort, and then there's the poor people, and that's the way that things should be, and that this re- this rebellion is a kind of leveling movement that's trying to upset the natural order, and, you know, you d- and you don't want to ang- anger God either, because, uh, you know, God likes the natural order of things as well. Right. You don't want him on your bad side, um, and some have financial reasons for many loyalists, you know, as I talked about those planters, then, you know, the reason the Caribbean colonies who sympathize with a lot of the Americans don't rebel is because they need that cash from Britain, Mm -hmm. uh, to fund their operations. They can't do without it. Uh, even though some of them, you know, have uh, inclinations and sympathies with the Americans and others just because they hate the Patriots. Uh, they, you know, they don't like upsetting the old order. Uh, they don't like, uh, Patriots who are in their face all the time about you know, the king and all this kind of stuff and so they just they hate them And a lot of people try to stay out of the way you know they're trying to not get caught up in it all
0: and that's like i said i think that's a big part of it that you know nowadays being an american and just looking at what the way thing is it's just easy to to overlook i mean there was a lot going on <laughs> the yeah day-to-day business must have just been insane
2: yeah you because we in some ways, you have to compartmentalize it, right? Because you need to try to explain the war, especially when you're in the classroom or just to the general public, like there's there was disputes about taxation. Some Americans weren't happy about that. It leads to a revolution slash war and ultimately independence. But the reality is it's a much more complex, complicated situation and what a lot of historians are interested in doing now is sort of talking about the experiences of people as they try to deal with the war itself or the revolution mm-hmm. and try to navigate their way through it, trying to figure yeah, out you know just how they're going to survive and what opportunities they can avail themselves of in the process.
1: Now have we have we discovered as uh, I guess historians will talk about them. Have they discovered kind of what that looked like for people on an individual level?
2: Historians have been doing a lot of great work recently on uncovering those kinds of stories, uh, focusing on enslaved people who used the chaos of the war and the opportunities that the British offered them to you know, free themselves, uh, women who took the opportunity to either work for either respective armies and earn wages, uh, women like Catherine Green, who was the uh, wife of General Nathaniel Green, who essentially takes over the family business because her husband's off to war. And we know a lot more about how women who remained at home were actually running family businesses, running family farms, mm-hmm. keeping things moving. And so it's it's really fascinating to look at the ways in which life in a strange way goes on or people are adapting to the wartime situation. Um, we, you know, in the Loyalists, for example, um, we have a great, uh, but we have a more understanding of, of how um, of what happened to those in, uh, folks who decided to go into exile after the war. We think about 68,000 or so leave. What become the United States after the war. Uh, some leave later, they're called the late loyalists. They're like, ah, this Republican stuff, small Republican <laughs> stuff, we're, we're not gonna do it. Let's go to Canada. Um, but we know a lot more about what we call the loyalist diaspora and where people go in Britain and Nova Scotia and uh, East Florida, things like that. So uh, it, it's, uh, it, it's part of uh, the recent sort of um, resurgence of what we would call social history mm-hmm. uh, and looking at ordinary lives, or looking at lives themselves and the individual experiences they have and marrying that with the political and economic history and literature that has come out in the last you know, 25, 30 years to enrich our understanding of how people actually lived and what they did. Uh, and it's, it's been really great.
0: Well, it's so easy to hit the keynotes, right? And just be like, oh, this happened and that's great. But there's so much more to it, you know? Just like you said, they're, they're, those are lives there. And if you think about your daily, what you, what you deal with on a daily basis and the decisions you make aren't even close to that, it, the repercussions are just, it's very interesting to me to, to put yourself in those mm-hmm. shoes.
2: Yeah, and I'll give you a concrete example. A colleague of mine at Carleton College uh, named Serena Zaben has written a marvelous book called The Boston Massacre of Family History. And we typically think of the Boston Massacre as the mob in Boston and the soldiers who opposed them and the soldiers fired Mm -hmm. and some people ended up dead. John Adams defends them in court. He wins, Mm -hmm. but it's a larger sort of precursor to the rebellion. And what Professor Zabin has done in that book is shows the ways in which the British army who is stationed in Boston is really... Integrated into the life of Boston, they're marrying locals, Uh, they are doing business with local shopkeepers, they are part of the economy, they're, uh, you know, looking for places to settle. Uh, And the Bostonians are looking for those same opportunities with the army, you know, marrying an army officer, maybe going someplace else after their rotation is out, things like that. It's a whole, I, I, I still, it's one of my favorite books. And it's actually really kind of inspired me in the way I'm thinking about my own writing in ways in which uh, you are able to open up entire new worlds by looking at the sources a different way and asking kind of different questions about an event that we think we know, but we really don't.
0: I mean, and I, John Adams got a, a whole lot of flack for representing everyone in that. He did. He did, <laughs> but he, he,
2: he thought he was upholding the law and doing what he was supposed to do as an attorney.
0: And I'm, I imagine that probably hurt him down the line when he was trying to convince everyone or working with people to convince everyone to to become independent.
2: I, you know, actually not really. Um, he takes some plaque for it at the time a little bit, but the way he frames it is within these kind of language of expectations of British membership in the empire, uh, the philosophical principles underpinning that, uh, he was a great student of a lot of what we would now recognize as small R Republican philosophers, uh, Sidney Algernon and, and James Harrington and, and folks like that. And so he, he was kind of speaking a language that a lot of Americans, even though if they hadn't read those texts, they intuitively kind of understood by you know, the, the process of political seasoning, I guess you could say. Uh, and, you know, he relies on a lot of that philosophy later when he is, urging his colleagues uh, to go forward towards independence uh, in the Second Continental Congress.
1: So when when you had mentioned that they uh, they regarded central power with a lot of suspicion, uh, how did we end up in a situation where they kind of consolidated to a single president? And that also gets me wondering how much power then did the president have compared to the one we have now?
2: Yeah, excellent questions. On the one hand, well, not on the one hand, to start with the first part where, you know, what's going on after the war? Why do we get a president? I mean, to generalize, things were a mess. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We, the period after the war, so 1784 to 1789, before the installation of the new federal government is what we call the critical period. And we call it the critical period because it was a critical moment in which it wasn't clear whether or not this new republic was going to survive, or if it was going to be dismembered into its various parts. If the Spanish, who were still out in the Southwest, uh, what is ne- well, what is the old Southwest, if they're going to try to entice some states into the Spanish fold, the British uh, will get some ideas and try to peel off uh, some other parts under their sway. You know, even though they had just fought a war against them, and there were also, you know. a a great many problems. So they have this Continental Congress. This Continental Congress has no power. Uh, And that makes sense to us because if the revolution was fought in some ways in opposition of centralized power, well, why are you gonna give this new governing body any kind of power? So the government can't tax or the the Continental Congress can't tax. What it can do is say, hey Virginia, um, could you send us like $10,000 please? And, you know, Virginia can say, sure, or most likely go to hell, (laughs) uh, essentially is what happens. The issue is, is that the United States, to prosecute the war, to fight the war, like their British predecessor, has contracted an enormous amount of debt. So they owe the French, and that that causes a huge problem for the French. That leads into the French Revolution, but that's a whole other podcast. Uh, They owe the Dutch, they owe uh, some other creditors, the states... Uh, owe money to these various entities, uh, the, federal, the federal government, it's not really a federal government, but the confederation government owes money, but they have no power to tax. They can't, they can't pay back their bills. They can't really treat with foreign powers. You know, the foreign powers have a king uh, or some kind of monarch in, in other places, you know, in this, in this sort of few number of republics that exist. You know, they have a president or a prime minister or whatever they don't want to deal with the Congress. They don't want to deal with a the committee. They like want to meet with a person face-to-face or at least have a person who is invested with the authority to deal on behalf of their people. So that causes problems. And there's also the fact that the, the Confederation government cannot put down rebellions. Um, so there is Shays' Rebellion uh, very early in the, in the critical period. It's an agrarian rebellion in Western Massachusetts in which farmers are upset about debt, inflation, uh, taxation. There's a similar one in Western Virginia. And that's the moment when you know, men like Madison, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, realize, oh crap, we gotta do something. <laughs> All these problems are compounding. Um, they, and so they call a convention uh, in Annapolis for 1786. Hardly anybody shows up, but the important people do like Madison and Hamilton, and they decide, all right, Philadelphia, 1787, let's go there. Our objective will be to revise the Articles of Confederation, but of course, when they get there, they're like, nope, let's rewrite the whole thing and write a new constitution. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, they develop the new constitution in part in response to these problems, the lack of taxation, they empower the federal government to do that, uh, lack of uh, clear foreign diplomacy. So the president is invested with those powers uh, in, in consultation with the Senate uh, and some other things as well. And you know, with the president, you know they they're very careful. Um, they write it in a way that that person doesn't have a whole lot of clearly defined powers that gets figured out. But really, the important thing is that everybody in the room knows that if this thing passes, if the Constitution is adopted, that Washington is going to be the first president, and they feel comfortable enough eventually with the document they come up with knowing that because they know his reputation. They know that uh, while he would be delighted by being president, he pretends like he doesn't want it. And so he is that self-effacing uh, person who is, is uh, putting forth his own civic virtue. Uh, they saw his, the ways in which he subordinated himself to civilian authorities during the war. Uh, And, you know, if you think about history, right, that could have gone very differently. You know, we've had a Caesar, we've had Cromwell, Napoleon, who are invested with power by civilians only to turn on that civilian body. Washington doesn't do that. So they think, all right, we'll do this. Um, In Washington, we expect will be president and uh, we trust him with that power and we'll sort of figure out the rest as we go along.
0: His presidency kind of didn't end on a great note. (laughs) No, it didn't.
2: He was real tired by the end. He, he oh, you know, he bit. could have stood for a third term, but he seventeen ninety seven. He's like, I'm out. I'm done. Uh, in part because of the emergence of political parties, which the founders had not wanted, but were already in the ether anyway. And so the the division into these emerging camps of the Federalists and the Republicans, capital R Republicans or Democratic Republicans, but, but Republicans for simplicity's sake, not, not the Lincoln Republicans slash modern Republicans, but Jeffersonian Republicans causes him a a great deal of consternation. Um, and he, uh, he decided, you know what? I've done my bid for King and country. I'm going to go home. I'm going to go back to Mount Vernon, which is where he wanted to be anyway.
1: You had mentioned that, uh, it was kind of a gray area in terms of what their power was right i feel like even now like if i watch the news uh, i don't i don't really know what biden could get away with doing on his own because it's not really clear so it's always been that way in some ways yes
2: and in some you know more formal ways legislative ways but also in some kind of cultural practical ways and so Mm -hmm. for that for the latter for example the Washington has these weekly levies, he calls them. Uh, this is actually a, a kind of holdover from uh, kingly type things where you have a kind of weekly reception for people around town, prominent guests. And the question that Washington has to figure out is um, should I shake hands with people or should I put my hands behind my back? Mm. Uh, and so that's kind of like the uh, sort of a practical cultural thing. It's not clear um, you know, is does it diminish the president's authority and standing if he, shakes hands with individuals, or if he mm-hmm. has them behind his back, standing prominently bows to people as they come in, makes, you know, polite talk, things like that. So, you know, you still see that in the news today receiving alliance. Now the president shakes mm-hmm. hands, but yeah. Um, but in other real ways, it's unclear uh, in the early years of the presidency, some of uh, how some of his powers are actually supposed to be executed. So for example, um, early on in his presidency, Washington, is involved in negotiating a treaty with some Native American peoples, and you know when the president negotiates a treaty today, uh, he he concludes it. The document is sent to the Senate for advice and consent. The Senate votes, you know, that treaty up or down. If they vote yes, it becomes you know part of the law of the land. Wasn't clear what advice and consent meant in that period, okay. so <laughs> so Washington takes it literally he he literally goes to the senate and it's like Mm -hmm. what do you think guys and and they're like we we don't think you should be here this is sort of like the king showing up in parliament you're not supposed Mm -hmm. to do that and allegedly washington you know he goes twice and the second time you know it's very clear that they don't think he should be there and he walks out and supposedly he says something like that's the last damn time i'm ever going to do that and no president has gone back since and so the advice and consent has always from that time forward been the senate deliberating as a body about the wisdom of that treaty and whether or not they should vote for it um so it's, a, it's that kind of stuff and actually a document that we have that's not too far from where i'm sitting so i'm in the washington library at mount vernon and down the hallway in our vault um i don't think that's giving away the location it's not like you could break in anyway. Is, is exactly here's the code
0: <laughs> <laughs> is uh, one, two, three, four.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, 1776. Yeah, <laughs> uh, we have a document called the acts of Congress and, uh, in the winter of his first presidency in 1789, Washington has the constitution and then all the laws passed by the first session of Congress bound together in this book. And he gives some, he gives one to Jefferson and and some other cabinet members and it's the Supreme Court and whatnot. But in his copy, Washington, who very, very rarely wrote in his books, um, he's not like some of the other of his generation or now where we scroll in our books. But he mm-hmm. after this incident with the Senate, he actually starts to go through that document and note in um the constitution where the president's powers are mentioned and kind of makes a little notation about what he's supposed to do or what he's supposed what he thinks he's supposed to be doing um what are required of him as opposed to um may you know so that mm-hmm. that legal distinction between shall do this and may do this there's quite mm-hmm, important. Yeah. so he's uh you know the president shall give an annual message to congress on the state of the union so he writes something like, you know, required in there, you can actually see him kind of interpreting the constitution, interpreting what the powers of the presidency are, figuring it out in real time, what he's supposed to be that's doing.
1: That's, that's awful. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds funny in practice because I, I can just imagine him writing down note to self, don't ask permission on treaties. <laughs> exactly, exactly, yeah, exactly. Imagine that nowadays where you go into a
0: job and they're like, all right, here you go. See you yeah. later. And yeah, like, we'll see,
2: yeah, exactly.
0: Uh, I have hey, to read it, this book to figure out what the hell I'm doing here. Right.
2: Like, <laughs> and the, the question still persists in our own time, right? You know, right now, President Biden is theoretically deliberating whether or not he can cancel student debt. He claims he doesn't mm-hmm. have the executive authority to do that. Some legal scholar says that he, he has. He says that he would rather have Congress do that. Um, some say he has the power to cancel $10,000 of student debt. Um, I hope he finds the authority to do that because it would really help me out, man. <laughs> but <laughs> but, but, but yeah, even today, it's like, uh, even if, especially in stuff that's not specified in the constitution, mm. they're having to go through these statutes and figure out, all right, what actually, what kind of legislative authority or executive authority does the president have to, to do his job?
0: It's mm-hmm. interesting that we've kind of forgotten over time what they can and cannot do.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and the presidency has acquired, actually to go back to your earlier comment question, the The presidency has acquired more power over time. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that right. scholars call the imperial presidency these days, where they have um, aggregated so much power into the executive office. Uh, for example, you know, making war without Congress's authorization. You know, there is yeah. the War Powers Act that theoretically the president is supposed to act ask Congress, but, or is supposed to... Um, justify intervention after a set period of time but only congress can declare war and so can the president really in the interest of national security launch an attack when you haven't declared war um he can in practice yeah he can he's like you know I, i'm i'm commander in chief so yeah
0: yeah well yeah, there's also he can send the united states marine corps they don't need congress Right, right, that's, right. That's written into the Bible Like, they don't need Congress to go to war. So if he wants to start something with someone, that's who he's going to start <laughs> the with
2: the Marines. So. Um, so, yeah, that's uh, the questions. A lot of the questions get resolved over over the ensuing centuries, but a lot we're still trying to figure out.
0: I just, I, I, it's an interesting time. And a lot of it, like, it's a horrible place to get it. But at the, uh, the HBO series, John Adams. If you, I know, Jerry, you mm-hmm. haven't watched it. I haven't. If you haven't watched it, you need to go watch it. If you're any sort of history buff with uh, American history, it's a fantastic show to watch. There's another one too. I can't remember.
2: It it is very good. Jefferson? Is there one on Jefferson? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so. But yeah, the Adams one. I mean, it's what 15 years old now or something, but it's it's pretty good. The thing I love about that series is the accents. I know that they did a lot of work trying to figure out the early American accent, and you know. How close they got we'll never know because all those guys are dead um yeah. but uh they uh, it's one of the things that sort of we used to mull around in our minds people still do like you know did did washington speak with a hint of an english accent because he was an upper crust virginian or um, we just don't know so I
0: imagine i mean how long had he been in the country <laughs> or like you know what i mean at that time when in the country had accents disappeared
2: Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, uh, it's unclear. Uh, Well, I mean, in that period of time, you would have heard of a cacophony of sounds, really. Um, Mm. You know, English, Irish, Scottish, uh, Moravian, you know, German, Pennsylvania, Dutch, uh, what we call today, um, you know, any number of Native American languages. um, You know, by by that period, a lot of the uh, Native American population uh, was not, no longer near the coast as they once were, although that's not entirely the case. There are some populations still, but you know, Creek, Cherokee, Iroquois, um, various African languages from enslaved people. You know, we know that, you know, um, various languages there, so.
0: You had discussed earlier about uh, the slaves and not their feelings towards the war. That's one thing I've never really got heard of any, anything about.
2: Yeah, that's, there's been a lot of great research in recent years on that in part because what the British figure out how to do very quickly is weaponize slavery against the rebels. A great example is the the November 1775 proclamation by Virginia's royal governor, Lord Dunmore, promising emancipation to anyone who rallies to the king's standards. And he eventually forms something called the Ethiopian Regiment. His efforts aren't uh, entirely successful, but the British see that as a tactic that they can use against uh, people like Washington, people like Henry Lawrence, they can leverage uh, enslaved people's desire for self-emancipation and freedom against uh, the Americans so they can you know, fill their ranks and whatnot. And so you see a lot of flight to freedom by enslaved peoples. Um, one example is uh, we're here from Mount Vernon. There were uh, several people who escaped to a British warship called the HMS Savage. Uh, a number of them were eventually recaptured and returned to Washington. There was another enslaved man named Harry Washington. Um, and I, I can explain why he has that last name here in a second, but Harry Washington flees early in the war uh, to Lord Dunmore, uh, he eventually uh, serves in the Ethiopian regiment and eventually becomes a member of what's called the Black Pioneers, which is a kind of um, subordinate uh, uh, logistical unit that a lot of uh, British uh, regiments had. And eventually, Uh, goes into into exile, uh, gets out of uh, what becomes the United States at the end of the war, goes to Nova Scotia, and then eventually on to Sierra Leone by the late uh, 18th century. Um, And the reason he has the name Washington, not entirely clear, but so many people flee from their masters during the war that at the end of the war, there's a kind of arbitration between the British and the Americans about returning enslaved people, returning enslaved property. The Americans obviously want them back. As you can imagine, the enslaved people are like, nope, we're good, uh, <laughs> we're formerly enslaved people. And as a consequence of that arbitration process, and it's and it's uh, complicated, but we can go into it if you want, there's something that's called the Book of Negroes that exists in which everyone who is leaving, formerly enslaved, who has a valid, essentially a passport and certificate is entered into this book and Harry's name is in there. And he mentions that he was formerly the enslaved person of General Washington. And so probably at that point, the last name and the first name were put together and he became Harry Washington. Um, But he and a number of of formerly enslaved people end up in Nova Scotia, uh, where it was cold as hell. And then eventually took the British up on their offer to help settle Sierra Leone in, in Africa late in the 18th century.
0: They made one hell of a trip. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's a fascinating process. Uh, there's a great book by Cassandra Pibus. Uh, I think it's called Journeys to Freedom, in which she tells Harry's story. But there's also the side right where there are African-Americans who fight for the patriots. Uh, the First Rhode Island Regiment has a number of, of African-American men serving in it. Uh, uh, A story named Judith Bannon Buskirk has a great book called Standing in Their Own Light, which is all about African-Americans serving in Patriot forces. And uh, so there's a lot more we know about uh, folks like Harry Washington, folks uh, who are serving in either the Royal Army or or the British Army or the Patriot side these days as a consequence of these kind of new questions that we're asking.
0: Now, in your research, i got to imagine... I would think everything you're looking at has already been looked at thousands of times. Is Are you finding new things or is it just you're taking it from a different angle?
2: Yeah, yes and no. And so some sources, right? It's bringing a fresh perspective. It's asking mm-hmm. new questions. It's thinking about the questions that past historians have asked and considering it from a different angle. Um, you know, historians, we fear that it, we theoretically like to imagine ourselves as being objective, but you know, no one can very difficult. You know, fully <laughs> purge their biases, but you know, questions of the present help animate our questions of the past. Uh, and so thinking about how do the legacies of slavery, what do we see the legacies of slavery in our own time? You know, we start to think about structural racism. We start to think about um, you know, resistance to slavery and, and resistance to racism in our own time. Well, let's ask some questions of the past and the sources there. In other cases, it's actually, quote unquote, new sources. So either sources that have been discovered or sources that are difficult to get to. Um, for enslaved people, we really don't have anything in their own words. It's very rare actually, unfortunately, uh, to find something in their own words. Um, an escaped slave named Ona Judge is, is one example. Um, she self-emancipated from the Washingtons in 1796 and later gave uh, an interview in the 1840s about our experiences, but in a lot of instances, we'll, we'll see the name of an enslaved person or mention of an enslaved person in the, the uh, letters of their enslavers or more uh, prominently probably in their account books and what they paid for this person, what labor that they're doing. Um, Washington, and we're really lucky here at Mount Vernon because Washington was such a meticulous documentarian of his estate and of the labor being performed here. And so we've got these farm reports from his estate managers and from himself where they are talking about the work that individual enslaved people are doing. And uh, we can begin to use those and and bring fresh perspectives, fresh questions to those documents. But then when stuff turns up, you know, we we have a more complete picture uh, that helps us reconstruct those
1: lives. Now, I'd imagine that, because this is the sort of thing that you do a lot of research on, you've probably come across this, but I, I think it was maybe, maybe a month or two ago, I've been seeing things come across my YouTube feed, which are videos, um, or really they're recordings with just an image laid over it. And a lot of it was recorded in the very early 1900s talking to, uh, freed slaves. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of a strange thing to listen to something where you're interviewing someone who used to be a slave and this was, you know, they were a slave in the early nineteen hundred, early 1800s. And they talk about, you know, what their point of view was on slavery and kind of like very conflicted feelings about being freed, too.
2: Yeah, so you're, you're talking about the, uh, the Works Progress Administration, uh, the WPA mm-hmm. narratives in the 1930s. Sure, yeah. a fascinating account of folks who were formerly enslaved, later freed at the end of the Civil War and, and before and yeah it's a really rich resource uh of both uh life as an enslaved person later free person but it's also a really interesting way to think about the power dynamics between the interviewer and the mm-hmm. interviewee right yeah so in a lot of cases and there's been some work done on this in, mo- in most cases the interviewee or interviewer would have been white right and there, and so the, the research suggests that there is on the part of the interviewee uh, attempts to kind of mollify or kind of give the interviewer what they want to hear. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we're in in thinking about the time period and what this has done, right? In the 1930s, this is still a kind of the heyday of the lost cause narrative, the lost cause narrative being predominantly from the Southern states and the old Confederacy that, you know, we could never win the war in the first place and that this is my, you know, putting favorite in air quotes here. My favorite claim is that racism didn't exist before the war, and so, <laughs> um, so there are fascinating look at how um, there is a dialogue going on there that's both spoken and unspoken, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you yeah. can kind of detect the ways in which the interviewees, the formerly enslaved people, are being very careful about what they say and how they uh, and how they you know approach and try to um, treat with the interviewer. But, it, yeah. but they're also great resources, like the great resources yeah, sure. for reconstructing family histories, for understanding the Southern economy in that period, for understanding uh, the process of emancipation and the chaos of the Civil War. Uh, it's, it's they're fantastic.
1: You make a good point about, you know, how they kind of uh, temper, how they respond in the interview because of the dynamic. Uh, so I didn't hear them say themselves anything that was too direct, but I heard another one from, I don't, I don't remember the names, uh, as I just kind of passed through them pretty quickly. Yeah, sure. But there was uh, a white guy who uh, was recorded around the same time frame, and he was being interviewed about his interactions with the black population because mm-hmm. he was trying to uh, basically give them equal rights and things like that. Uh, so he was one of the people working towards that. So they interviewed him about his conversation with them. And because of that dynamic, they were more comfortable talking to him. Mm-hmm. And one thing that I found... Uh, really interesting. It was a pretty powerful statement was he said that when he was talking to uh, a, a black gentleman, I don't know what his name was, but he told him, I'm trying to win you your rights so that you can be a full citizen here in the United States. And his response was, well, I was born with rights. So you can't, you can't get me those. Basically everybody has rights. All they have to do is stop taking them away.
2: Yeah. Uh, it's a that's a really powerful response, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a uh, you know claiming the rights that you already have. You know that this uh, the principles of the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal and endowed with certain inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But you know, possessing those rights naturally, as this interviewer had pointed out, was different than actually being able to exercise them effectively. And you know what, one of the the key things that happens post-Civil War is that Southern states figure out how to circumvent you know, the 13th, 14th, 15th Amendments, uh, reimpose uh, black, you know, black Codes and then Jim Crow and things like that and you know, limit newly freed people's participation in the democratic process.
1: Now, going back to the Revolutionary War, when it turned out that uh, America won their independence, mm-hmm. what happened to the, uh, the slaves that made the deal with England? that didn't go and uh, do work for them. They just ended up coming back to where they came from, right?
2: Uh, it, it's uh, hard to tell. Um, and so we've, we, you know, we know that several thousands, probably you know, 10,000 or so were able to escape you know, with the evacuating British army. Uh, those who did not have one of those valid certificates, those valid passports, uh, they you know, were probably sent back to their enslavers. Um, one of the clever things that the British general, Sir Guy Carleton, who's overseeing the evacuation, does and then infuriates Washington to no end is say, he says, um, Well, I see that uh, the, the peace negotiators have put a clause in the treaty that says enslaved property will be returned you know, back to their masters. Well, uh, I interpret that to be active as of the date that the document is signed, not when they actually fled. So uh, all those people who fled up until September of 1783. Uh, and they've got the certificates, they can go with us. And too bad, so sad, GW, uh, you can't have them back, which Washington was, <laughs> was pretty pretty angry about. And then Sir Guy Carlton refused to see him the next day to talk about it further. Um, we don't know, I, I don't think we know enough about the people who were recaptured, who were sent back to their enslavers. I think that is an area that is, is uh, in need of research Um, we, you know, we have a clearer sense through documents like the book of Negroes, where people like Kerry Washington went, what happened to them? Uh, but not a clear sense. I think, and I could be wrong, but I, I can't recall reading anything recently that would give some insight into that. So I think that's an area where, I mean, we need to do a lot more work. Um, the, the perspective freedom that gets taken away
0: now. I think in the, I think it was in the last month, maybe the last two months, they found several, um, or maybe one they found, I think one they unearthed, um, time capsules from the Civil War. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Have they been uncovering anything like that from a Revolutionary War or that time frame at all?
2: I don't know. Um, the one that comes to mind, and I may be misremembering this, I thought that there was one in Boston a few years ago mm-hmm. that was uncovered but was probably damaged from water damage, but I I don't know.
0: Um, I would think it would be impossible not to be.
2: (laughs) Yeah. Well, that is part of the problem with some of the civil war era stuff. Well, and post civil war, actually down here in Virginia, they removed the Robert E. Lee statue from monument Avenue in Richmond. And there was a Mm -hmm. time capsule. There's actually two. Yeah.
0: Yeah, That was one of them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. One was, one was severely damaged, but then the other one was actually amazingly in great shape uh, relatively. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I watched the live stream of them pulling stuff out and it was fantastic.
0: Yeah. I watched that same live stream. It was Mm -hmm. very interesting. Um now do you know anything about how much freemasonry played into basically the, the the start of the revolutionary war
2: Not really uh I think that tends to be a history channel thing <laughs> They're
0: like uh, there was an illuminati and they were
2: conspiring against the
0: Less more than the the the, the you know conspiracy theory Yeah. But, I mean of our founding fathers majority of them were freemasons but that was like that was a a thing of culture back
2: then. Yeah, it was. Uh, it was, uh, and actually, it's funny enough. We're talking about that because I'm giving a giving a talk on the 26th to the to the Masons at the National Masonic uh, Memorial about uh, the ra- yeah radicalization of um, Washington's friends and enemies before the war. But um, you know, it was a, a certainly a social thing. Uh, it, but I, it's a one. It's an area I don't know much about. Um, but the the there's an, actually a new book coming out by a man named Mark Tabrett. Uh, which is about Washington and Freemasonry. Mm-hmm. And it'll be coming out from the University of Virginia Press uh, since the spring or early summer. So
0: I know it was a big part of his life. I know that the, the Bible he signed in on was it was a you know a Bible from Freemasonry. You know? mm-hmm. um, it's like yeah. a, a group that guarded.
2: <laughs> my uh, my great grandfather was a Freemason and I remember seeing some of the texts uh, when I was a kid. I had no idea what they mean. Um, but I, yeah, I'm, I'm not well versed in the, the masonry aspect of the American revolution.
1: Interesting.
2: Yeah. I have to use my, that's, I don't That's know what card. we'll
1: have to look into. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So as, as a historian, uh, with your pretty extensive knowledge on the history here, uh, how often do you speculate on what could have been?
2: It's fun to play counterfactuals and it's actually an exercise that we do to try to explain what did happen. Cause you know, we're not simply interested in what happened, but we have to explain why it happened, you know, what are the motivations behind the people and things like that. And so, you know, one of the fun things, right, is um, Washington himself, uh, Washington desperately wanted nothing more in life to wear the red coat of a British officer in his youth. Um, never gets it for a variety of reasons. But um, his big moment is in 1755 at the defeat of General Braddock at the Monongahela. Mm-hmm. and. Braddock is wounded. Washington leads a successful retreat, a pretty highly guarded retreat. Washington had been trying to get someone to sponsor him or to look favorably upon him to get that British commission because you just couldn't, you know, you couldn't just become an officer. You know, you either Mm had to buy a commission or someone had to vouch for you. And I often wonder if Braddock had lived and he had then personally vouched for Washington, after that evacuation, you know, talked about his gallantry, how he successfully led the retreat. Braddock had lived and he had vouched for Washington with the secretary at war and eventually the King and Washington got that red coat, how things could have been different. You know, Washington right. at that point, you know, was a, you know, all in on the British empire. Uh, and part of his souring on the British empire is not getting that commission and, and seeing ways that the empire is not working for Americans. But if he got gotten that red coat, you know, I often kind of wonder uh, if there had been a rebellion, which side would he have been on?
0: Well, I mean, just in general with the rebellion, I mean, it could have very easily gone the other way, right?
2: Yeah, the Americans had some things going for them in terms of both home field advantage and all they had to do was not lose. Uh, but I mean,
0: just start it.
2: Oh, right, 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 right.
0: Like if you had enough people who just chimed up in the other direction, does it even light off? Yeah,
2: yeah. it's, uh, if, if the Americans had seen the Boston Tea Party as simply Boston's problem, as opposed to seeing the British reaction to it, as opposed to them seeing that reaction to it as indicative of something that was going to infringe upon their rights, it might've mm-hmm. been a little different. Like it's uh, mm-hmm. crap, the Bostonians are causing problems again. Here we go, <laughs> just shut up guys and we'll yeah. be fine. Uh, but no, they, uh, as they say in the Michael Jordan documentary, they took it personally and they, and they, and, uh, and it became something much larger.
1: Now, this is, it's kind of a, like a two-part question in, in this realm here. Uh, what would have happened if the British won and what was their actual plan if they did win? Like, were they just going to go back to business as usual? seems like it'd be kind of hard to do that after that everybody was pissed off like
2: that. <laughs> yeah, I, to take the second part of the question, I, I don't know if they've I've ever seen that kind of advanced planning. I can talk about the reaction after they lose, mm-hmm. and how they start to think rethink the nature of the empire itself. But uh, I, haven't, I thought
0: haven't thought that far. They haven't thought that far because
2: they're trying to win. And it's complicated for them, as I said, right? The, the Americans have home field advantage. The American Army, the Continental Army just has to not lose, not just not yeah. has to, has to avoid annihilation. That's Washington's key objective. Washington, you know, wants to be a very aggressive commander, but he realizes the army's gone, the ball game's over. Um, the British, you know, there is a sense that the rebellion must be quelled. But there are a lot of actually British Army officers who are sympathetic to the Americans, or at least some of the arguments that they're making. And so the the Howe brothers, who early in the war are uh, commander in chief of the army, and uh, Sir William Howe is in command of the army. His brother, Lord Admiral Richard Howe, is in command of the navy. They have sympathies with the Americans. Uh, they had actually been trying to back channel with Benjamin Franklin before the war breaks out to try to reach some kind of accommodation. But they still, you know going to do their duty for king and country. They take an approach that is a kind of, if we hit them hard enough, they'll come back to the negotiating table and this will all be over. What they probably should have done is just um, gone in and got the job done with a heavy hand. And that mm-hmm. might have, you know, that, that might all. have, you know, shock and all that might have quelled the rebellion. You know, that mm-hmm. might have inflamed it even worse. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the house choose this tactic. They choose... Uh, you know, they invade New York in 1776. Washington loses Manhattan. The, the British hold Manhattan throughout the entire war, key strategic port. but they don't hit the Americans as hard as they probably could have. Um, and they also have the logistical problem of sending men and material 3,000 miles from home. That's uh, a long ride. <laughs> right, it's a long ride. They, they uh, are hoping that there are loyalists who will come out of the woodwork in the South, that's part of the Southern strategy. Um, in the uh, later uh, parts of the war, you know, Sir Henry Clinton goes down to Virginia and, and, they, and then eventually to Charleston, they take Charleston in 1780 and they think, well, if we take these key Southern ports and territories, the loyalists who have been hiding and afraid of the Patriots will come out of the woodwork, they'll rally to the King's standard and we'll finish this thing. And it doesn't really happen. Uh, so they've got a bit of an intelligence failure there, uh, unfortunately for them. Um, but yeah, I often do wonder if they had just brought full might to bear, if they had not, from the House perspective, tried to inflict some soft blows to bring the Americans back in line and in and this business, if they had just brought the thunder, I guess you might say, uh, things could have been different. We might all be still loyal subjects of Her Majesty the Queen right now
0: have very strange accents. (laughs) (laughs) Now, as far as like military tactics, I mean, we look back, or at least I look back at it today and I think like, why would we ever go at this? But that was what they did for that era. Was there anything that we did that was just completely off the wall crazy?
2: Well, yeah, actually the Battle of Trenton in Christmas of 1776, when Washington, you know, crosses the Delaware and attacks the Hessian position in Trenton was kind of insane uh, because usually what you did in the 18th century is when it gets cold as hell, you go into winter quarters and everyone sort of mutually agrees that we're not going to fight anymore because, you know, yeah. this, this is dumb,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but, the, <laughs> but, but, but w- what Washington Jerry would second that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like this is just, we're not going to do it. It's we're going to go into our camp and we'll see you in the spring, you know, sharpen your bayonets and make sure your powder is dry and we'll have our fun uh, in a couple of months. Um, it's not really that simple. Of course, they're always doing something, but, you know, the, the problem for Washington in December of 76 is that the enlistments are going to run out. Morale is in the toilet. The rebellion is hanging on a knife's edge or standing on a knife's edge. Uh, if he doesn't do something to kind of inspire confidence in the army, his own leadership and to bloody the British nose that, you know, they're not going to roll over as they think that we are. And so crossing the Delaware in in that December and striking at the Hessians and then later at at Princeton was a pretty kind of insane move. Uh, The British don't see it coming, and the Hessians don't see it coming because, you know, they're like, all right, winter quarters. where It's Christmas time. Um, You're not going to cross that river. It's chock full of ice Um, because it would be dumb. Uh, But um, that was really important because the British – as I had just said, they had invaded New York, they had taken Lower Manhattan, they had boxed Washington's ears, as my grandfather might say, all around the island, and they needed a victory, and they got one.
0: Um, I'm, t- I'm trying to remember. Was it the Gray Fox? Is the Swamp Fox. Swamp Fox. But I can't remember his name, though.
2: Francis Marion.
0: He was the one who, like... Guerrilla warfare. Yeah, he the was
2: the inspiration for the Mel Gibson
0: character in The Patriot. Oh, was he? I didn't even know that. Yeah, <laughs> really? yeah, Francis
2: Francis Marion, big deal. My wife's from South Carolina; they all love him. Some Francis Marion. There's a bunch of people named Francis down there for this guy. But yeah, he basically uh, was a practitioner of, of what we would now call guerrilla warfare. Um, you know, harassing the British, things like that, disrupting supply lines. Um, Yeah, because
0: they were all used to standing in line, beating drums and, you know, take a shot and then get hit and stand in line just take it again.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, too, thinking about tactics and strategy. I mean, the British did have some experience fighting in North America. They had just done it, you know, 15 years earlier. But there were a lot of people you know, recruits, generals, whatnot, who had not. And so they were not accustomed to fighting in the woods, essentially. And so the the topography and the landscape is also a pretty key advantage for the Americans in this war, and particularly in the South, because it's hot. There are bugs everywhere. There are swamps. It's just God awful, you know, uh, and, you know, Francis Marion and folks like that are willing to engage in tactics that are, uh, that a lot of people would have recognized as uh, you know native american tactics um mm. you know coming out of the woods terrifying their opponents uh striking quickly things like that
1: now i i can understand i guess the the efficiency of operating a battle where you just march two groups of people together mm-hmm. it seems really dumb <laughs> <laughs> that's what i mean yeah like, nowadays you're like God, I wouldn't want to do that. <laughs> yeah, well, we I
2: mean, the uh, while
0: people shoot at me, ex-
2: exactly. I mean, it was a way to maintain discipline, right? Maintain your yeah, formations, yeah. but also a reflection of the technology. Uh, you know, the smoothbore, uh, flintlock, you know, muskets, and, and, and occasionally a rifle. They're not; they don't have an effective range of more than you know, seventy-five, yards. Mm-hmm. So the chances of actually hitting somebody. Are rare. And so the idea is that you fire off a couple of volleys, fix bayonets and then charge and try to drive your opponent off the battlefield. And you know, mm-hmm. if you claim the field, you've claimed victory.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, thinking, they, thinking, the thinking back, rounds were too damn big. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thinking back to then, you know, compared to now, I, I guess, you know, it makes sense with the technology, but, uh, I don't know. I mean, what's going through someone's mind when they're marching up against a wall of people shooting at them. Like, I guess, their, their aim's not that good. It's, you know, smooth board. It'll probably hit the guy next to me instead.
2: Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think especially on the, in the British side, which they're highly disciplined, highly trained, you know, they are a professional army. Uh, they've got composure. Now that doesn't mean right that they're not afraid or scared, but they're able to maintain discipline. Whereas the Americans, um, a lot of those folks were, you know, they've been in militias, but militias were more important uh, in the backcountry where there was perceived threat, whereas in the uh, in the coastal regions, it was more of a social club thing. So you showed up, you, you did some marches and cool man, you went home and you did your, your monthly or whatever regimental or your militia duty. Uh, and so part of the problem that Washington has is that he, he doesn't have a professional army that can fight against a disciplined one. And so he doesn't really get it until Valley Forge when, uh, you know, the famous Baron von Steuben comes and whips, uh, the army into shape, uh, shouting them in, in shouting at them in, uh, you know, obscenities in both French and German. And then, you know, when he can't runs out of words, he has people swear at them in English and things like that. Um, but yeah, um. Another misconception we have is that you know the war was kind of bloodless. It was actually a pretty violent war, and you know, especially in the southern campaigns, there are soldiers' accounts of just you know kind of terrible bloodlust. And um, and one of the things I think would be really fascinating, and, and folks have done this for the Civil War era, and certainly the World War One, is to think about what we would now identify as PTSD. That really hasn't been done for the American Revolution, and I would I would be fascinated to see that.
0: Could you even admit that you had PTSD after that? Because, I mean, I, I guarantee you had soldiers come home and turn to drunks and raise right. their minds. But I guarantee there were a lot more that came home and just shut their mouth.
2: Yeah, it's it's entirely possible. I mean, and they would not have had the language to describe what we would now, you know, what they called shell shock in World War One or PTSD in the modern era. Um, so it, it's, a, it's an outstanding question. We, you know, we just don't know um, how that the mental health of the American army or the British army for that matter. Well, we just don't have a great deal of insight into that. I think.
0: They also, to a degree, could have been numb to it. I mean, their lives probably saw a lot more what we would call trauma nowadays. That was somewhat more commonplace. Well,
2: it's an excellent point. I mean, death was a much more present part of life uh, than it was than it is now. I mean, we're in a unique moment with COVID in which the, the death toll from the pandemic is quite high and, in ways, that's shocking to a lot of people. But for seventeenth, eighteenth, through the nineteenth century, uh, death is a is a constant companion, and so yeah, that's why know,
0: people had so many damn kids,
2: right? Right, and you know, <laughs> often would name the new kids after the dead kids. It's uh, kind of an interesting mm-hmm. uh, facet, a little tidbit there for your cocktail parties. Um, <laughs> but, but but yeah, I mean, it was That'd uh, really
0: start a conversation <laughs> <laughs> exactly.
2: Let me tell you about this. Uh, but yeah you know, death, you know, death, uh, I don't know if that would be fair to say that death was stalking people in that period, but death was much more of a present part of their lives and they expected people to die. I mean, they, Mm -hmm. disease, um, you know, combat, things like that.
1: Now, speaking of uh, communication differences, uh, I get the impression our communication now in terms of uh, not just talking to each other, but countrywide, significantly better than it was back then. Mm. Uh, listen. Yes, no. th- there's a lot of weird <laughs> stuff going on, but I- I'd be willing to bet our communication is a little bit more efficient and clear now. I think our technology is better
2: technologically. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> whether or not we're hearing each other, that's the other <laughs> question.
1: Yes, <laughs> but looking back, we, you know, with what we know now, <laughs> what kind of things do you think we could take from that situation and apply to today?
2: Yeah, I actually think about this a lot, and the technology aspect. Has really revolutionized our lives in ways that some, you know, some are good, some are bad, right? So, for example, it would have taken a couple of months for an order from the Secretary of War to reach the generals in North America, you know, the British generals. Now, at that point, his orders could have become irrelevant because the situation on the, the battlefield had changed. Certainly, with Washington uh, communicating with generals and subordinates. Uh, you know, they're closer distance, so they've got more real-time reporting. But the fact that, you know, these days we have a computer, we can fire off an email, uh, we can fire off a tweet, and we can do that in a matter of seconds, as opposed to sort of sitting down and thinking about, you know, what we actually want to say. That doesn't mean that people in that period weren't sending mean emails or <laughs> wrote letters that they should not have, and there are some great ones. Uh, send
1: a nasty pigeon.
2: Right, send a nasty <laughs> pigeon, or firing off a missive that you know, they should have thought twice about. Yeah, But the act of writing has changed so much where there is less, I think, contemplation it doesn't, you know, of course, in a wartime situation, you've got to hurry. Uh, but, um, you know, folks like Washington would dedicate parts of their day to sitting down and writing letters. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we mark off time for email or social media, but not to the extent I think that they did. They
0: so I think a lot better handwriting.
2: Right, exactly. So <laughs> I think that the, the, there's a loss of uh, contemplation unfortunately, as a consequence of our technological revolution. But at the same time, you know, they still found ways to leave that mean comment on their version of
0: YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) I also think, though, that that made you have more, you probably took a little bit more into deciding who your generals were, right? Like, nowadays, your quote, unquote, generals, you probably don't have to think as much about because, oh, I can just correct them immediately. Mm. And then, I can't correct him for months, so he better be really good at his job. Right.
2: Right. Well, and it was also complicated by the fact on both sides that you had people of status, people of privilege who thought that they deserved to be in positions of authority, but deserved to be generals. Uh, Horatio Gates, Charles Lee, both had served in the British Army, eventually served in the American Army. They thought, well, I've got military experience. Clearly, I should be a general. (laughs) Lafayette, all these French officers keep coming over with Commissions uh, from Silas Dean, who is negotiating uh, with France on behalf of the Americans, and they, they keep showing up in Washington. So it's just like, why? Where are you getting these commissions? I, I can't make you all generals for God's sake. And then uh, certainly in the British case, where aristocracy is much more powerful and much more of a thing, there there are people who are politically well connected, uh, who come from the best families, who. Uh, uh, who've worked their way up through the ranks, so to speak, in terms of, you know, waiting their turn to become a general. Um, uh, and, or, and a lot of these guys are also members of parliament. Uh, so that's, mm-hmm. that's uh, something as well. And uh, it, the British never find, they never really find the right combination of, of generals. Uh, and they, there's always a tension between their civilian overlords and them because they are, mm-hmm. They want status and recognition. They're competing with each other. The Americans do too. But then that 3,000 mile gap just exacerbates the tension between uh, the British government and their generals. A um, story named Kevin Weddle has written a new book on the Saratoga campaign called The Complete Victory. He, he does a wonderful job of really laying this out and explaining how personality conflicts in 3,000 miles caused a hell of a lot of problems for the British uh, and, and led to that uh, defeat that was so consequential for the Americans.
0: Well, it also makes you wonder, when we were going back to Parliament with things that we wanted, where the, the king would veto, I mean, mm-hmm. what, what was the turnaround on that? Six months?
2: It could be, depending on sailing conditions, yeah.
0: Well, even then, it, when it got to his desk, quote-unquote, yeah. would he look at it immediately?
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would happen is it would go to the Privy Council, his advisors, they would evaluate it, they'd make a recommendation, he could always override them the thing we have to remember is that is the monarch in this period has a lot more power than the mm-hmm. current monarch you know that elizabeth ii is a head of state uh but in some ways a, a figurehead uh mm-hmm. king george Third is a, a monarch in that kind of transition period but he still enjoys an enormous amount of power and he you know he can vote up or down any way he would damn well pleases
1: well before we wrap it up uh i have uh, one one question i think uh could be an interesting take Chris has heard me say this many times and uh, he just rolls his eyes, but oh so you're, you stu- where this is going. you study go. a time in history where power was kind of fracturing and restructuring into at the time, smaller groups. Mm-hmm. So going forward, what are your thoughts on the concept of a single world government? And <laughs> it sounds conspiratorial. Well, I'm not, not talking the about works. the Bilderberg group.
2: It's a really, I mean, that's what Gene Roddenberry envisioned for Star Trek, right? Uh, Yeah, so Star
1: Trek seems like a a good goal, but I I don't think we'll make it that far.
2: I, I, no, I think what we'll need is first contact by the Vulcans to unite humanity in ways that never happened before. what I say. Uh, And so we need to build a warp drive so that we get noticed. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) But uh, I, I, I think I wouldn't say that there's not, at least in my lifetime, a potential for that kind of unified government, I think. The, we'll probably see a continuation of the UN model, uh, sort of a global deliberative body that has some power, but only as much power as the member states are willing to give it.
1: Uh, right, right. And
2: you know, the, the UN Security Council is controlled by uh, you know the five permanent members who have absolute veto power over anything, so that that makes it really hard to get stuff done. So I don't see anything anytime soon where we'll see a, a kind of global government.
1: So we need that common space enemy first.
2: There is exactly
0: <laughs> there's
2: <laughs> a common space. If we're in, a yeah.
0: tribe. If we don't have if we right now we still have to butt heads with each other. If we don't have someone that we can like come together to butt heads against, yeah, it's not gonna happen.
2: Yeah, that's um and that's always it's the the aliens, it's always the you know the one to go, right? And then we face mm-hmm. an extinction level of
0: humans, It could un- be
2: humans, uh you know, it could be a self-inflicted wound um mm-hmm. that we need to fight against, but it is a fascinating exercise like what would force us as a species to at least temporarily put aside our differences for a kind of greater good um mm-hmm. maybe it's aliens uh maybe it's climate change maybe it's uh something that's on the horizon that uh you know we haven't seen yet i don't know uh it would be nice if we you know mm. stopped doing dumb things and and <laughs> uh actually pursued nope. something but um In conflict, unfortunately, there are interesting stories that come out of it.
0: Now, more in line with what we were talking about and maybe more of an exercise for you, do you find yourself comparing the Revolutionary War to some of the things you're seeing nowadays?
2: Um, I mean, you can see elements, right? So that resistance to central government, although I don't know if it's central government as opposed to the, the political philosophy of those in power. Um, I see actually much more in common with the late antebellum so the uh the pre-civil War period uh yeah. when you saw bleeding Kansas, uh, you saw conflicts between um you know uh free states and slave states over the direction of the country of this uh notion that there is a conspiracy, right that there was this notion in the north of a, slave conspiracy or a slave, uh, slave power conspiracy, uh, that was attempting to subvert the democratic government. Same thing on the other side, right? The slave oligarchs thought that, uh, the North was trying to infringe on their rights and use the federal government to extinguish their property rights. So I see a lot more of that. I mean, there's always this notion that there's a paranoid style of American politics. You know, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not, but, um, Unfortunately, I see a lot more similarities at the time the nation tore itself apart than I see mm. in its independence period.
1: Agreed. <laughs> well, for uh, people who want to find out more about uh, the independence period, where can our guests find <laughs> information uh, about that regarding you?
2: Uh, regarding me, uh, you can find me at my website, which is jamespambusky.com, uh, A M B U S K E, for those who are interested also at James P. Ambusky on Twitter. Um, and for uh, some of the topics we've talked about, including the Revolutionary War era and the enslaved community at Mount Vernon, uh, we actually have just released in the last month or the last couple of months, a new podcast called Intertwined the Enslaved Community at George Washington's Mount Vernon. It's an eight part series that uses uh, biographical portraits to tell the story of slavery at Mount Vernon, the enslaved community here slavery in general in the United States and also the Washington's relationship to it. And you can find that by going to georgewashingtonpodcast.com.
1: Awesome. Well, we'll send people there, put the links up on our uh, episode and thank you for being on the show. It was a very informative conversation for me.
2: Well, thank you. This has been an absolute pleasure and I'm I'm glad to be a bastard now, I guess.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the club. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Thank you. Well, Grizz, now I'm painfully aware just how much I didn't know about my own American history. That's the uh, Connecticut school system for you. <laughs> well, you might be able to say that we we rank pretty high in the country. But yeah, yeah, I can like tell that you fucking matters. <laughs> I can tell you that a lot of the stuff that Jim told us about, I had never even heard of.
0: It, it, even if you never heard of it, you probably just never thought of it. You know. Yeah. We went into a lot of details that kind of the minutia of of daily life. Oh yeah. I never thought about before.
1: <laughs> and you know what what came up that uh kind of caught me by surprise was when you think about American slavery I don't really think back to colonial America which I guess, you know, that's most of it. I would say that's when I go back to. <laughs> so I think of like after the uh, Revolutionary War. So maybe mm. we'll say like 1800 and 1900. That to me that's the time time yeah, period. You're thinking of pre-Civil War. Yeah. yeah. So I wonder how many of the listeners also kind of had that viewpoint where they don't really think back to the colonies because you think, you know, the colonies, they're they're building everything up and you don't really equate it to slavery because, they, mm. you know, actually, when, when they taught me slavery in high school, if they did mention it in that time frame, it was incredibly quick and glossed over. I mean, it's pretty much,
0: I mean, it still happens today, so I can't even say that it was pre-Civil War. I mean... Slavery is a fucked up thing and it still goes on
1: Yeah, yeah Um, But yeah, there was a a lot of wild stuff That I I had no idea about
0: (laughs) Now Jerry needs to go read Some books and watch some movies Yeah, I'll be be binging documentaries For the next year (laughs) Thank you again for listening to Beautiful Bastards New episodes every Monday Remember to like and subscribe Government of laws,
1: not of men And remember A democracy never lasts long